Well, hey, we are in week two of our series that we're calling Christianity's Greatest Questions, and it's kind of a a series that I'm really enjoying, and it's something that basically deals with these significant questions of the faith. And this week, as we continue the series, we're going to talk about whether or not we can trust the Bible. And as the weeks go on, we'll, we'll cover different things. Next week, we'll do science versus religion. The following week, we'll do the problem of evil, and we'll finish up with the problem of hypocrisy in the church. So that's the topics that we're going to deal with this week. Can I trust the Bible? The short answer is yes. If you're in that spot, hallelujah. I I believe you'll still get something good out of this sermon, but the short answer is yes, you can trust the Bible. I believe this is the holy, inspired, inerrant word of God. I love the Bible. It's a beautiful, wonderful general revelation from God. Super excited about that. But when I first became aware of the things of God, you know, and I again described that last week, I really didn't understand how all this stuff worked. I knew that the Bible was the the Christian book, but I didn't know anything really about it. And so I had to try to find out and I didn't know if I could trust the Bible because I looked at the church and I thought these are messed up people. They have messed up the things of God. And so how do I know that they haven't messed the Bible up too? You know, uh, I'm not sure if I can trust this. So I had to go through a process. Now, people would read scriptures to me like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And now I see the profound truth in this. But at that point, I just saw it as circular reasoning. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let me ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, has God ever asked you to do something that you didn't feel equipped to do, that you were incapable of doing, that you just thought, man, I, I can't do that? Well, what's the promise here? That you will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Would it be something to feel confidently equipped for what God is calling you to do? How do we get there? Go back to verse 16. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So if we go into the scriptures, the promise is that this is God breathed from God and will help you, will teach you things, rebuke you. You know, it's easier to be rebuked in your personal devotional time where you're reading the Bible and God is showing you something than for someone to have to come up to you and start shaking you and saying, you need to cut that out. You know, it's much better when this happens between you and God. God can rebuke you personally, and then you don't have the relationship strain. It's way better. So the scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that leads us to a place of being equipped for every good work. So I believe that is true, but early in my Christian faith, I wasn't sure. I didn't understand what was going on. And so I decided I was going to learn the Bible. Uh, I, I made a couple of decisions. The first one was that since I didn't have any religious upbringing and I didn't have any sort of lens to see the Bible through, I decided I would just study the Bible for 10 years, not read any doctrinal stances, any theology, nothing like that, no interpretations of the Bible, no commentaries. I would just read the Bible for 10 years. After that, I would 
look at different commentaries and doctrines and theologies and that sort of a thing. But I decided I'm just going to do 10 years of just the Bible. Now I went to church. I listened to sermons. I went to Bible studies and things like that. So, you know, you get some of that stuff through that. I didn't want to completely isolate myself, but I intentionally just thought if I learn the Bible first, then I'll be able to evaluate all of these doctrines and theologies and all that stuff. I'll be able to see it. So I decided to do that for 10 years. Also, I decided that if it's true, I need to prove it out. You know, I was, I was a big scientific method sort of person. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to start in Genesis chapter one. I'm going to read it verse by verse, and I'm going to see if it proves out verse by verse. So I started in Genesis chapter one, and I thought, I'm going to see if it's true. How far do you think I got if I started in Genesis chapter one, trying to prove the Bible verse by verse? I found out in Genesis chapter one that I don't have enough information to be able to prove it out myself. I'm either going to have to believe it or not. I don't have enough information. At the same time, though, I was studying the Bible and trying to learn about it. One of the problems we have in the Christian world right now is we want people to convert to Christianity before they find out what it's even about. I mean, how many people would say this is the holy inspired inerrant word of God, but you haven't actually read it. You know, that doesn't make any sense. If you don't even know what it says, how are you going to have a position of faith towards it? One summer, I, I had a great job. I was painting apartments at a huge apartment complex in Illinois. I was in graduate school, and it was basically just student housing. And so it was whitewashing the walls. You were just repainting them the same color they were so that the walls looked clean. It wasn't like I had to pay real close attention to the paint job. So I had my, this was back in the olden days, I had my boom box and the, the Bible on tape, you know. And so I'm listening to the Bible on tape. And that summer, as I was painting these apartments, you know, by myself, I was able to listen to the Bible all day long. And so I got through the whole Bible three times. And then I did the New Testament seven more times. So I listened to the New Testament 10 times and the Old Testament three times. And I just wanted to find out what does this book have to say? Because I need to find out. And so as I'm studying the Bible, as I'm listening to the Bible, certain verses were popping out and being significant to me. And one of those was James 4, 11 and 12. James 4, 11 and 12 says this, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. How many people know that as Christians, we're supposed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to be there for them. We're supposed to help them. We're not supposed to slander them. We're not supposed to run them down. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. So here, James is saying that if we break the command to love one another, that it's not just that we're breaking a command, but that we are judging the law, speaking against the law, you know, the law of God, the ways of God, the truths of God. I'm like, what? This doesn't make sense to me. So let's just keep reading it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So very much strong on this, but let's go back to verse 11 and get a, get a look at that. So it says, when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. And what this did to me, so I guess I'll explain what this means. So if I know that we're supposed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet I don't, then I'm saying that that rule is wrong. 
When Jesus said that we're supposed to love one another as he has loved us, we need to love one another. If we are choosing not to love one another, then we are judging what Jesus said. We're saying, no, he was wrong. I'm going to not love, you know, I'm going to slander my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to run down other churches in town. I'm going to do all that stuff. Well, then I am saying that what Jesus said was wrong. So you're judging the law. You're judging what Jesus said. You're disagreeing with him and you're going your own way. If you understand that he has said to do that, according to how this verse reads, you're not just failing. You're also putting yourself above the law of God. And I thought, well, that's, that's a dangerous place to be. If I'm not keeping the law, you know, keeping the scriptures, keeping the truths of God, this isn't talking about the Old Testament law, but the new law of the spirit. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. And I realized that I was judging the Bible. I was looking at it. Well, should I believe that or not? You know, I'm putting myself in a place of being the judge over the Bible. And I thought that's that doesn't seem like a good place to be. And so I thought about when I face the Lord, you know, all of us will give an account, we'll face God. I thought to myself, okay, let me, let me look at two scenarios. Scenario number one, I read the Bible, threw some out, kept some, and basically evaluated on my own understanding. And then I go face God and he asked me, how come I did things a certain way? I'll say, well, you know, I did read your Bible, but I thought it was wrong in a lot of cases. So I just did my own thing. And I don't think that would go real well. Whereas if I stand before the Lord and he says, how come you did that? I said, well, because I, I read your Bible, I believed it and I did what it says. I felt like, well, that's going to go well. That's where I want to be. Now, people were making different arguments and, you know, looking at things. People say things about the Bible, like it's full of contradictions. I don't believe the Bible's full of contradictions. I just want to read a, a, a few verses, a, an apparent contradiction here. There's many, many, many examples of this. And I just want to read one of them. So let's read Matthew 27, 37 and 38. So this is the account of Jesus on the cross. And if you're familiar with that account, you know that Jesus wasn't crucified by himself, but there were two robbers, two rebels, thieves that were also crucified with Jesus. So let's look at what the Bible says about these other two people that were crucified on the same day as Jesus. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And then jump down to verse 44. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So in the intervening verses, they're talking about all the people that are, are just heaping insults on Jesus. And the two thieves on the cross next to him are described as also heaping insults on him, both of them. Then we go to Luke chapter 23 and we see this. Same account of Jesus' death on the cross. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. So which is it? Did they both heap insults on him or was it just one and the other one was sympathetic? Is that a contradiction? Well, here's how I see it. It's two pieces of the puzzle and they're, they're kind of like moments in time. You know what I mean? So like 
Jesus would have been on the cross with these two criminals for maybe six hours. And they were close enough to talk to each other. So if you piece the situation together, I believe the, the two criminals started off both insulting Jesus. And Jesus on the cross in absolute agony, receiving the, the punishment for the sins of the world, is at the same time witnessing to these two people that are on crosses next to him. And they're talking and they're having conversations. And at some point in the day, one of them turns and stops insulting him and says, you know what? I, I think you are who you say you are. And his heart shifts. And so we see here the picture of the process of Jesus witnessing to these people because the two accounts show different moments in time during that day. And so it's not a contradiction. It's just more of the pieces of the puzzle. And there are so many things in the scriptures like that, where if you take it just as a black and white thing, it seems like a contradiction. But if you look at reality, how life works, then you can see that both of these things can happen. Just it might be 15 minutes apart, might be three hours apart, but they had plenty of time for that transition to happen. So I don't believe there are contradictions in the Bible. I still do have questions about Genesis chapter one, but some of my questions aren't answered, but I believe there are not contradictions in the Bible. Another thing people will say is the Bible says crazy stuff. I mean, it says God created the world in six days. It says some big fish swallowed a guy and barfed him up on the shore three days later. You know, it says the sun stopped in the sky. You know, big seas are opening up so people can walk through. Like, there's weird stuff in the Bible. And so it can't be true. Well, with that one, it's like, well, where's the crazy? You know, that's the game I like to play. Where's the crazy? The Bible says crazy stuff. But if you believe that there's a God that created the universe who's all-powerful, then what's the big deal about a a whale swallowing some guy and barfing him up on the shore. God can do that. He can absolutely do that. So the crazy thing is that there is a God. If you're willing to go that far, well, then God can do what he wants. He can do miracles. The fact that it doesn't make sense is why it's a miracle. You know, it, it has to be impossible for it to be a miracle. And so I don't think that that argument is any good either. So I was looking at these things and I just finally came to the place where I thought I got to make a decision. I've got to either go with the Bible or not. You know, it's like you're driving 80 miles an hour towards a cliff. You better turn. You got to turn left or right. You got to make a decision. So I, I chose, this was a volitional faith choice. I am going to accept the Bible without enough information by faith as the holy inspired inerrant word of God. I'm going to make a choice to trust the Bible, just deciding I'm going to do that because I thought that's the best course of action. So I did that. And the thing that was amazing was that after I started to put my faith in the Bible, which means that if I disagree with the Bible, the Bible wins. That's what believing the Bible means is that if I read something, I'm like, ah, I don't know about that. Then I say, you know what? I'm just going to trust it. I must be wrong. I'm going with the, what the Bible says. That's what putting your faith, your trust, believing in the Bible means. And so when I did that, I noticed that my life began to change. My heart began to change. My life got better. When I first got saved, my life got worse. It really did. I sort of had the anti-salvation story. You know, my life was fine. I got saved. Everything fell apart. You know, it was a disaster. 
But then as I started learning the things of the Bible and not just having head knowledge, but really believing and trusting in it, then I saw my life begin to change and things start to get better. And it really was a huge, huge deal in changing my life. So basically what I saw after I trusted the Bible was the fruit of believing in the Bible, which I think is the greatest evidence for the truth of the Bible. So once you believe it and you put it into practice, you'll see what it does for your life. So now I have the evidence of living a life consistent with the scriptures, living a life of faith in the scriptures and seeing what that does. And that is greater evidence than anything else, putting the Bible into practice, and then you get to see what happens. So it was like by its fruit, it showed itself as true. So I want to talk about two things that believing in the Bible did for me. First one I already mentioned, my life began to change. It started to turn, started to become different. Last week I talked about my Holy Spirit baptism experience. That also was significant. These were things happening at about the same time. But the other thing was I was just trusting the Bible. And so I would read things like Matthew 5, 43 and 44, from a faith perspective, from a, the scripture has authority over me. If I disagree, I'm wrong perspective. Matthew 5, 43 and 44, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So do you believe the Bible is the holy inspired inerrant word of God? Then you need to do this. If you don't do it, you're standing in judgment on the law. You're not keeping it, as we read in James. And so, love your enemies. That's a tough one. I mean, if you're actually going to do that, you know, too many Christians just settle with cognitive dissonance. You know, they're like, yep, says that, not going to do it. I'm good. It's fine. You know, and they just live in this contradiction. And that's not where we're supposed to live. We need to live in obedience to God and we need to trust God. We can sure learn and, and, and have things revealed to us over time, but we walk in obedience and trust, not in just cognitive dissonance and, and contradiction. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, okay, I got to do this. And when you, when you endeavor to do these things, you begin to learn things like it's hard and it takes time and you have to get there. You know, like it isn't just like, yep, love my enemies now. You know, like I just choosing to do that. You know? and then, you, then 15 minutes later, you're thinking about your enemies. And you want to choke them and you're like, oh, I haven't got there yet. You know, and, and you realize that it's a, it's a process of spiritual growth to get to these places. And so you have to fight through and get there. So I'm reading things like this and I realize I don't get to like some people and dislike other people. As a follower of Jesus, everyone I run into is someone Jesus loves dearly and has died for. I don't get to marginalize some, dislike some, hate some. I don't have the freedom to do that. I don't have the right to do that. So I'm not going to do that. Now, when you read Love Your Enemies, it just seems nonsensical. It seems like, well, that, that's, what in the world is that? I can't do that. But here's the second thing that trusting the word of God did for me is it allowed me, it led me into interpreting the Bible in a coherent way. So this must be a good thing from God. I got to find it. 
I got to keep looking till I understand how this is a good thing from God, that loving your enemies is a good thing from God. How do, how do I find that? There is a coherent truth of God in there. So we got to keep looking. I think people who pretend to believe the Bible just sort of, yep, that's true. And then they walk off into that contradiction life, but they never actually find the good thing from God and they can end up in some incoherent things. So we start here with love your enemies. Now, let me kind of foreshadow what we'll see here in Romans, but imagine this, what would your heart be like if you actually loved the people that hurt you instead of being full of bitterness and unforgiveness and anger and all those dark feelings? What would happen if you actually had love in there instead of that, that resentment? your situation would be better. You know, something would be different on the inside of you. So this is a blessing to you. And it is a profound part of the kingdom of God. So let's go to Romans chapter 12, read 17 through 21 and tie this into loving your enemies. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. So how many opportunities do you have in this life to repay evil for evil? You got lots of them, right? Lots of opportunities to repay evil for evil. But we aren't supposed to repay evil for evil, but we're supposed to repay good for evil. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I love that, you know, as far as it depends on you. Sometimes you're in a world of strife, it's not on you. But make sure it's not on you. Don't use that as an excuse. But sometimes, you know, people are just tough to deal with. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So years and years ago, I had a lady that I was working with. She's trying to forgive somebody, and she said... I just don't want them to be off the hook with God. They need to pay for what they've done. And here's the deal. The reality is you don't get to forgive them between them and God. You can only forgive them between you and them. That's all you can do. They're still going to have to face God, you know, and, and God is real good at dealing with people who hurt other people. You know, the whole millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the depths of the sea stuff. You know, like God is real good at dealing with them. So unless they get right with God and get their sins forgiven, it's going to be hard on them for what they've done to you. You release that, you let God avenge. Then verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. I don't have time to go into the depth of that one, but basically what it means is when you return good for evil, the point will come when the other person will realize they're the one doing stuff wrong and they will come to a place of repentance and they will realize I'm, I'm the evil one. But we've all been in those situations of escalating wrong. Like somebody does something wrong, so somebody else does something worse, and then they do something even worse, and it just goes like that. If you're in a situation like that with somebody, do you focus on the things you've done wrong, or do you focus on the things the other person has done wrong? You focus on the things the other person has done wrong. And so what the Bible teaches us is take that out of the equation. Don't be doing wrong to the other person who has wronged you. Only do kindness. Only do good things to them. And then eventually they'll see that they're the one that's doing the wrong. And their heart will change. That's the heaping burning coals on their head thing. And then verse 21, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Don't be overcome by evil. There's a temptation in this life to be run over by the darkness and the evil and the cruelty of all the things that happen and to be overcome by all of that. But we're not to be overcome. Instead, we are to overcome. We are to be overcomers. We are not just to to stand, but we are to overcome evil with good. How do we overcome evil with good? Well, an important part of it is loving your enemies. If you can get to the place where you can rise above the situation to the point where you can see the individual who has hurt you is someone that's loved by God, is someone that Jesus has died for, is someone who needs freedom themselves, they need redemption and healing themselves. If you can rise above that situation to that place and then you can bless them and encourage them, both your heart will be healed from the the hurt and also you will be bringing the light of God into this world. And let me ask you this question. If everyone who considered themselves to be a Christian on this planet, 2.3 billion people. If 2.3 billion people were overcoming evil with good and loving their enemies, what would this world be like? I tell you, the kingdom of God would shine. And so loving your enemies is part of bringing the truth of God, the beauty of God, the glory of God to this world. And so once you see that, it becomes coherent and you can go forward with it. But sadly... Too many people read, love your enemies, and they're like, whoop, can't do that. And they just walk along with a contradiction. It's not helpful. I want to read a funny example. I'm sorry. Every person I've ever heard interpret this verse, I believe, has interpreted it wrong. Because they've interpreted it in a way that doesn't make sense. Just 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Let's just read that one. Favorite verse of mine. Pray continually in the NIV. King James, pray without ceasing. You know, if you grew up in church, you've heard this verse before. I've only heard people interpret this as you should pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's the only interpretation I've ever heard. And that, I think, doesn't make sense. I mean, it's one thing to be conscious of God 24-7. You know what I mean? Like, be conscious of God through your whole life. But we take special times out for prayer. And what this verse really means is be a person who has a vibrant prayer life and don't lose your vibrant prayer life. That's what this verse means. It doesn't mean we're supposed to pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That can't be done. It's impossible. It doesn't even make sense. We need to be conscious of God all the time, but we take time and pray. We separate it out to connect with God in prayer. Have a vibrant prayer life and don't lose your prayer life. That's a coherent understanding. It's doable because if somebody hears you're supposed to pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week, what do they know? They know they can't do that. So they walk in this cognitive dissonance. So that's impossible. And, and they just get into this weird place. Well, let's find a coherent understanding of the scriptures. It's that be a person with a deep, beautiful prayer life and keep it. Don't lose it. That's what that means. So two great things that really believing and trusting in the Bible did for me changed my life and led me to interpret the Bible in a coherent way. Now, of course, there's a problem, and that problem is that many Christians don't see the Scriptures in the right way. I want to talk about a couple wrong ways to see the Scriptures. So the right way is to see the Scriptures as the holy, inspired, inerrant Word of God to trust and believe in what the Bible has to say. And a couple wrong ways to look at that. First one is the Bible as trivia. The Bible as trivia or as pointless religious ritual or religious observance. I read my chapter, so I'm a good Christian. I can list the books of the Bible in order, so I'm a good Christian. Well, there's a big difference between trivia 
and finding the life-changing truths of God, the ways of God, the power, the profound ways of God that change you and the world. It's very different from trivia. And when people read the Bible in such a way that it bores them to death because they're pretty sure it's pointless and meaningless, but they know they got to read a couple chapters because they're going to their accountability group and they got to be able to say they've done it. Well, that's a horrible way to read the Bible. You're not going to find the beautiful truths of God that way. Have a curious expectation and, and belief that you're going to unlock something wonderful from God in the scriptures. So it's very, very, very important. I want to read Romans 2.13. It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. As a religious observance, I've read my chapters. I've memorized my things. I mean, it's okay to know that stuff. That's great. But you haven't really got anywhere yet. You know, don't think you're finished. It's just trivia. That's okay. I can't list the books of the Bible in order. I don't care. I don't even think I could say the 12 disciples right now. I could give a bunch of them. But it doesn't matter. Do you love your enemies? doesn't matter if you can list the books of the Bible. If you don't love your enemies, you're failing to follow the ways of God. There's a beautiful thing that you can unlock in your heart and you can grab hold of. Don't turn it into trivia. The second major problem that I see is a super detailed, intellectual, theological, doctrinal understanding of the Bible. You know, this whole, you got the Bible here, looks like a big book, but you see these multiple volume theological treatises on the Bible is huge stuff. Let me ask you this question. How smart do you have to be to follow Jesus? I mean, 150 IQ plus, or how smart do you have to be PhD level to follow Jesus? No, you don't, you don't have to be very bright at all to follow Jesus. How complicated is it to understand, love your enemy? How complicated is it to understand, walk by faith? And trust God, you know, how complicated are the things of God, you know, following the Ten Commandments. It's not hard. It's not super complicated. You don't have to be a genius to follow Jesus. And so when we turn it into this deep, you know, intellectual, theological, doctrinal thing, we can both make it difficult for people to understand, but we also can get off into the weeds. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, this is another verse that was very powerful for me because, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of person that likes to go into all the details and read the 17-volume set and all that stuff, but I don't think we're supposed to. It says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. So, don't go beyond what is written and being puffed up as a follower of one. Oh, I follow this doctrinal thing. I've got this theology. I'm this person over here. And then we're arguing about who's right. And we're all puffed up and proud about we're smarter than the other person. We've got more detailed and accurate, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Don't go beyond what is written. Are you loving your neighbor yet? Are you learning to forgive? Have you put into practice the very basic truths? Are you living out the Ten Commandments? I mean, don't go into this deep theological stuff and you haven't even put into practice the basic truths yet. So those are two things that I find very concerning. Seeing the Bible as trivia and seeing the Bible as some kind of super intellectual thing. Let's find the beautiful, simple truths of God. I heard somebody say one time that, that the world is shallow and complicated, but God is simple 
and profound. So we can be shallow and complicated, or we can be simple and profound. If you have not believed the Bible, I mean, maybe you've said, you know, you know to check in the box. Yes, the Bible's the holy inspired inerrant word of God. They taught me that when I was a kid. But then you read, love your enemy, and you're like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Then you don't really believe the Bible. So what I want you to do is to, to trust the Bible. I made a choice. I was like, well, okay, I'm just going to go with it. And it proved itself over time. I, I implore you to trust the Bible as the holy inspired word of God. Now, the Bible isn't something that we worship. The Bible shows us who to worship. And here's my controversial statement of the day. I heard this many years ago, and it stuck with me, and I believe it's very, very true. The Bible is not God. We know that. And the Bible is not the way to God. The Bible is the map of the way to God. I can pull out my phone, and I can type in on my map that I want to go to New Mexico. And I can hit the route, and I can learn the route. But unless I get in my vehicle and I drive to New Mexico, I'm not in New Mexico. I'm just looking at my phone. And that's one of the things that, that people miss is that it doesn't matter if you've read it. You've just read the map. You have to follow the map. You have to put your footsteps into it and you have to go there. Then you find the ways of God. Then you find the truths of God. So what I want to do as we close is to read a short section of scripture and I want us not to see it as the way to God, but to see it as the map and then for us to actually go there. So let's read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, and let's go. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, he's our great high priest, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So it says here that Jesus, our high priest, the one mediator between God and man, Jesus has been here. He knows what it's like to be here. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to have friends turn on him. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused and to be abused. He knows what it's like to be killed. He's been here and he's tasted the evil of this world. And he knows what we're going through. And so he can empathize with us. He cares about us and he's trying to help us. And so since we know that the high priest empathizes with us and he's, he understands us, then we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. It's not enough to read that. You've got to approach the throne of grace. What this means is that from right here, we don't have to wait Till we die, we don't have to wait for Jesus to return, but we can approach the throne of God right now and we can do it with confidence. And when we go, we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What do you need? Is there freedom you need? You've got something that's controlling you. You've got a, a perpetual sin. You've got a life pattern that you're trying to get free from and you can't get there. We can confidently 
uh, approach God's throne, the throne of grace, and we can receive help in our time of need. Do you need a breakthrough? You're, you're in a place in life where you just need to get over, over the hump on something. You need a breakthrough in that area. Do you have a heart thing you need? You, you're full of anxiety and fear and you need peace in your heart. Go there. Do you need forgiveness of sins and salvation? We can go and we can receive that. We can have it. We can go to the throne of grace. It's not enough to read it. We got to go. So that's what we're going to do now in prayer. We're going to go to the throne of grace. We're going to ask God to meet us right here. So pray with me if you would. Let's go. Heavenly Father, thank you for opening the door for us that we can confidently go to your throne. We believe that you hear us. We believe that you care. Lord Jesus, that you empathize with us. You see our failures and our weaknesses and the pains that we've experienced. And you care, you empathize, and you're cheering for us. Lord, we know that we don't stand on our own strength, but only clothed in your righteousness can we come before you. But we come before you, Lord, with confidence because your word says that we can. We come before your throne of grace. And we come because we need help in our time of need. If you need freedom, ask the Lord for that freedom that thing that's been, been holding you back, ask him for grace to overcome. You need a breakthrough. Ask God to give you the wisdom, the understanding, or maybe even the, the knowledge to know that you need to be going a different direction. Lord, bring that breakthrough. Father, for those who, who need the peace and the joy of the Lord in their heart and that's eluding them, they're full of anxiety and fear and depression. Lord, bring that grace to to. Let your love and peace and joy sink into their heart right now. Help us to grab hold of your truth and to live out the simple truths, to trust you and to trust your word so that when we see things that are hard, like love your enemies, that we won't just brush it aside, but we will ask you, how, how do I do that? And that we will then learn the simple, profound, life-changing truths that you have for us. Lord, let your peace be upon us. Let your joy give us great strength and help us to know how much you love us and how much you love others so that we can be filled up and that we can have extra love to share with those in this world who need it. Lord, bless us in this way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.